Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and my special guest today is Stefano Melgrati. Stefano is a great friend of mine, and we even use the same barber. But I ran into Stefano while I was doing a motorcycle trip down Baja, Mexico, and he was on his way having ridden the entire length of Africa and then come up the entire length of the Americas. We just happened to come across each other in a taco stand in Mexico. But in our conversation today, we talk about his trip around the world, and we talk about his time working as a reporter in conflict zones, and we also talk about how he funds his adventures. He's a professional architect, and he talks about how he's able to save and then travel the world. And traveling around the world, as Stefano says, the more time one spends traveling, the richer one gets. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. Stefano, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Man, it is so great to see you. It's been... Now, at least three years since we've, we've seen each other. Yeah, yeah. moving to four years. Yeah, Un- unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. And I think the story of how we first met is just such a fun one. Um, and I think you should tell it, because I've told this okay. story many times, because um, you know, you're, you're one of those people that you have this infectious enthusiasm <laughs> for life. And, and it's just, it's something that I respect so deeply about you and I adore about you as a friend. Um, and it was that initial meeting that we had where I was able to see your enthusiasm, not Uh only for life, but for travel. So maybe you tell the story of how you, how you remember us bumping into each other. My side of the story. But first of all, I'm, I'm also very happy to hear um, the timing that made it possible also is beautiful because I was now traveling uh, through the United States and yes. uh, with a very little notice I, I asked <laughs> if you would be in town and it matched perfectly because now you're living for a, for a, a tour I yourself. I am, exactly. It was just the perfect day yeah. that you were going to be here. So, so And how w- fun to have you on the podcast. So Totally surprised, taken aback almost, the first time that I do anything like this, so I'm yeah. a little uh, excited. <laughs> yeah, you'll do, yeah, you'll do so good. You'll do so good. So my side of the how we met, this, my side of the story, it actually starts even with some sort of caution, and I'll explain what I mean. Traveling through Baja California with motorcycle, I was already on my probably 15 plus months on the road. And uh, here in, uh, when I, well, I say here, I mean in where we met in Baja California, I came across um, many very well equipped uh, people from the States uh, that gave me the impression sometimes to be. Um, 
how would I say this? To have a mouth bigger than <laughs> than what? But not because of being from the states. I mean, I understand. I had the impression sometimes people would um, think that purchasing the equipment for adventure meant actually acquiring the experience <laughs> that comes with the travel. Sure. And so when I saw, I was driving along this route, I saw a taco stand, I was very hungry. I <laughs> usually back then had one hot meal a day and that would be my hot meal for the day. And I saw this mon- bunch of very well-equipped, <laughs> good motorcycles. <laughs> my very initial reaction, I don't know if I ever told you this, was I'll just go ahead and not stop here. Uh, yeah. Because I uh, basically didn't want to hear for another time that was I, I was under-equipped to do the travel. Sure. So sometimes it was a little tiring to have to say, no, no, you can actually do it. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to die tonight. Yeah. And um, so my initial reaction was, well, I'll just go for, to the next taco stand. But this was the first taco stand I had seen the whole morning, so I yeah. wasn't sure how many more I would find. <laughs> sure. So I would stop anyway, and that was probably the best decision ever because <laughs> from that it came the friendship with you and yeah. many, so many other people. Yes. Kurt was also there, Kurt yeah. Forget. That's right. And, uh, and then through that also Ray, yes. and then I got in touch with you, uh, yeah. so with him through you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Ray Denardi from Landover, Las Vegas. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Close, awesome. close friend of both of ours, amazing yes. guy. And we'll get to Ray a little bit more in a bit because you're currently driving <laughs> driving an interesting vehicle. But that's such that's such a, a good perspective to know um, your side of the story. Again, that, that you had been traveling through all of Africa. You've been traveling. And we're going to talk about your whole yeah. adventure here in a minute. But um, I'm so glad that you pulled into that taco stand. So Yeah, me too. And also, it was amazing for me to see how... You mentioned before enthusiasm for yeah. traveling. And it was amazing for me to see a bunch of people there that had so different backgrounds. And at the same time, they happened to be doing, by some sort of cosmic <laughs> alignment, yeah. the same thing. Yeah. So we were out on, uh, for different reasons. We we're, yeah. were out doing exactly the same thing and experienced the same moment. And some, somehow that is some form of selective combination where mm. people end up meeting not because of random accident but because of they chose to do the same thing they were yeah. driven to do the same things and they happened to m- found the common denominator that yeah. would make that moment possible yes kind of like the star wars bar right <laughs> you know where you got the you know everybody's coming into the star wars bar yeah. from all these other places exactly. that was kind of what exactly. santa rosalia was exactly. at the, in that moment and yeah we got to we got to share a, a meal together yeah. and and i got to get some of your contact information and and then mm-hmm. i bumped into you again in baja yes yeah. i remember i was um on these two uh, 50cc motorcycles, mm-hmm. so my daily displacement would be in the range of 200Ks, so 150-ish mm-hmm. miles, maybe 140. And my cruise speed would be 60, 70Ks per hour yep. to save the engine too. And I remember that day, the second <laughs> time we met, that I was looking in my review mirror as I often did because most objects on the road would move faster than I would, <laughs> so there was no actual yeah. need to look forward <laughs> most of the time i was looking backwards so you didn't get run over yeah. <laughs> exactly so i see these two specs approaching very fast and um only when you were got very very much closer i i suspected maybe it is them because i knew the route you would take back north sure and um and i remember then filming the video 
of that moment. <laughs> and I shared it with um, Jeff. Oh, okay. Yeah, Jeff Camacho. Exactly. Yeah. Who I was traveling with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because in this video, you can see them after we chit-chat and, and, and say goodbye. You can see the two of you just <laughs> taking off, literally. And, uh, and Jeff... Fake news, fake news. Did it, did it in one wheel. <laughs> yeah, he did. He took a wheelie, a wheelie out of there. Well, I mean, we had uh, five times more displacement on the motorcycles. Yeah. You know? And uh, the thing about chance meetings like this, and this is why I wanted to talk about it in the podcast, is that it's so important to talk with other travelers mm -hmm. because you never know who you're going to connect with. And now I have a lifetime friend that yeah. because of a taco stop in Baja and because we both chose, you chose to stop and we chose to be open and yeah. spend time with you. Um, we were able to create this incredible connection. Um, and I think that that is such a beautiful outcome of travel yeah. is the people that you create these lifetime, lifetime connections with. Yeah. So. And, and the interesting thing is you can apply this to, Life it doesn't yeah. matter. It doesn't have to be with travel. Meaning that sometimes uh, what a kid does well that we do normally adults do wrong is that when you play as a kid, you're not expecting any outcome mm -hmm. from the play. You just do it for the sake of exploring and then see what happens when you do this and that at the same time and sure. what's going to be the outcome. So we met there in Baja California because we were open to break the routine, go out and and have a day different from the previous and see what happens. Yeah. But the good thing is when you come back from a travel, you can apply that to your day then. And then stop thinking, okay, I'm going to go to work on this route because the one that I do is the shortest. I'm going to go to this coffee shop because it's the one where I go, always go. You just start traveling in your daily life. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. and the good thing is then the people you meet in a, in a taco stand, you can meet next door or three blocks from your home. And it's a guy that lives next door for five, ten years. And yeah, you never spoke to him Just because you felt stuck in that sort of routine. That's an, in, that's an interesting yeah. perspective, and I think that that's so true. Travel in your daily life, yeah. and yeah. you never know what you're gonna, who you're going to bump into. So your, your trip around the world, uh, there are so many lessons for things that I've learned from you, and also I think that the listener can learn from you. Um, to kind of to summarize, you basically, you leave Italy, and you drive the length of Africa mm -hmm. and then you drive the length of South America and then you drive the length mm -hmm. of, of, of North America as well. But talk a little bit about where you grew up in Italy, what brought you to this point in your life that you said, and I think you had even done some travels before that, yes. but talk a little bit about your travels. What led you to this point of saying, I'm going to leave yeah. on a 250 and ride around the world? Well, my old man has fault mm -hmm. you can say that like yeah. the, the guilty part in yeah. this because and i really owe him that since very young age um he never put a break on on curiosity meaning i would be 12 years old and tell him you know that i would love to camp with a friend of mine in the woods on our own because it feels more authentic than just going with the family the, the whole bunch and now looking backwards, I would think that the normal response to that would be, are you nuts? <laughs> sure. And instead he said, how many days you plan to be there? And he asked why. And he said, well, depending on that, it's the amount of water and food that I need to prepare. And it was, I remember saying five, just because it was the first number that I could think of. And, and so we were with a friend of mine, 12 years old, in the woods, probably a few kilometers where my family were renting a house. 
And they took us there with a bunch of, uh, two bicycles, because that was uphill from the house. So the yeah. idea was, I take you there with food, water, and two bicycles. And then when, when you're done, you just come back. Yeah, sure. And keep in mind, back then, no phones, yeah. no connection possible. To this day, I believe my father every now and then would just check on us <laughs> without telling us. Sure, sure, sure. But we did that. We were f- four nights in the, in the woods and uh, on our own. Yeah, sure. So the feeling that there's no real, let's say, intrinsic danger in being out. The danger is the same one you would have crossing the road, which is mm-hmm. be careful, and yeah. be responsible. There's a consequence for what you do. That's, that came from that. So instead of, you say, teaching you be reckless, because you could think that, ah, oh, who is so reckless to bring his kid in the woods? Maybe not. Maybe it's a very good university to the very opposite, as in... Yeah. Uh, you're on your own in you're a good better, way. You're better prepared for life. Yeah. yeah. So that was the very first experience. And from then on, my old man kept doing the same, meaning when I was 18 and I purchased my first big bike, so to say, it was a 350, a Kajiba mm. 350cc. Yeah. It was a piece of crap, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah, sure. With every beat a motorcycle, of my heart. Yeah. yeah. And I remember buying it and saying, you know, that this summer I plan to go from Milan uh, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean in, uh, in Spain, so the País Basque. I don't yeah, know okay, you say that. sure. Okay. And um, I remember we were having dinner, and I said, this is my plan. He sighed and said, no, on your own, no, it's too dangerous. So I thought, oh, tried, but it failed. Yeah. And instead he said, to my surprise and my brother's surprise, which who by then was 13-year-old, he said, you know no, what, you're not going to go alone. Why don't you take your brother with you? So it was me 18, him 13, <laughs> on our bike, no credit cards, no phone call, no, no cell yeah, phones, sure. no GPSs, yeah. I mean, just the old school paper map. <laughs> yeah. And we did it. And we went. And, Amazing. And for two weeks, they knew nothing about us. And then we came back safely. <laughs> well, kind of safely because we, we had a minor um, bike drop on, a, on gravel. Yeah. And uh, back then I wasn't to, let's say, to experience the mechanics. So what happened is uh, we felt the handlebar twisted. Sure. Little I knew that on those bikes, it's meant to be uh, elastic. So in such a way that it takes the hit. Yeah. So basically you just loosen some bolts, put it back straight and and drive. Instead of that, I came all the way back with uh, 45 (laughs) (laughs) 45 inclined handlebar, which made it a little hard to... (laughs) I bet. (laughs) But um, that was another, let's say, another step into making me feel very comfortable in, in going out and, and, and just see what happens. What an incredible story. Yeah, this yeah. Uh, Armando is my father's name. Armando is <laughs> well, a, thank you, Armando. That's a big part yeah, of this. Yeah, of course, of course. So from then on, it just uh, grew where every um, free time that I had, I would travel either with a bike or later on I bought a um, uh, Volkswagen Westfalia uh, van. And that, mm, let's say, made it... That's a good thing about traveling. That there's no way, one way to do it. And, and there's no right way to do it. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. And uh, so it was totally different than traveling with a bike because you bring your own, let's say, bubble, yeah. your own microcosmos with you. And it's way more comfortable, but at the same time, it also exposes you less to the environment, which is as a matter of fact, what you're looking for, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah, sure. So I loved traveling with the van, but was not nearly as, um, 
easy to integrate with people around you. Basically, because when you go with a van, you're secure. You have, you have everything you need. Mm. When you have everything you need, you don't look for it elsewhere. <laughs> sure. Whereas when you are with a bike and uh, maybe a 20 kilos package at most with you, you constantly need people assistance. That's right. And that's very good because you keep, you keep meeting people just because of the, the, sh the sheer necessity of yeah. it, which then becomes something addictive and you keep looking for people even when, when you don't need them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so in short, I think I prefer by much traveling on a, with very minimal gear, with very minimal, so to say, um, protective environment, so to say, you know, the bubble that I meant, like yeah. the, the, the van follows you and brings a little bit, say a few cubicle meters of your home, yeah. anywhere you go. But I think I prefer better. I enjoyed better in my experience traveling with a bike and very minimal gear. Well, and, and if I remember too, I mean, I think you had maybe like a giant loop bag or something like that. Was that, was that what you had? Um, similar. It was, um, um, let me think the brand. Wolfman maybe? No, it was Endurstand. Endurstand. Uh, yeah, those are nice. Yeah. I think it was a tornado or yeah, sure. hurricane, anything like that. Yeah. Um, but very small. Uh, very small. It yeah, was about remember, really 20 liters, 27 yeah. liters. That too, okay, not to make commercial, but when people does well their job, yeah, I'm happy to, to recognize that. The two side bags were from uh, Wolfman. Okay, sure. Saddlebags. And they were amazing. I, I treated those so poorly, not because <laughs> lack of affection, but just because the travel was hard and, and yeah. many times the, the bike falls and, and yeah. so they take all the weight. They were perfect. Yeah. The 24 amazing. months of uh, pure massacre and they <laughs> held up very well. Yeah, yeah. Very well. well, and and I think one of the things that stood out to me about your trip, and I for those that are listening, this is going to blow your mind, but... On average, you spent $26, $28 a day. A day on the 24-month period, meaning exactly. there would be countries where sure. Ethiopia where you would spend a dollar a day, a yeah. dollar a day. And then in the U.S., much more, of course, Canada, yeah. much more. Um, there's gradients. And also one factor was, um, keep in mind, when you travel 24 months, you can choose the season you're traveling in. Yeah. So in, say, it's, the wet season in uh, Central America, even if you love camping, you're going to end up using motels fairly often because yeah. we're talking about maybe 100 liters a night per square meter. Yeah, <laughs> so sure. it's going to swipe you away. Yeah. So that would also have an impact on, uh, on the budget. But say, I was also very much surprised when time went by and I was able to calculate a fairly accurate estimate and reliable estimate of the, let's say, the budget that you actually need. It's very low. It was between $2, the, the cheapest country, 50 the most expensive. But yeah. then, like you said, the average would be, I think, out of 24 months, I it ended up costing nearly $22,000, so less than 1000 a month. But that yeah. would include not only the travel expenses, but your life expenses, because when it's two years, you need still need to go to the dentist and yep. need to replace some part of the equipment you have. Yep. You have, uh, let's say, not only the travel maintenance, but your... your yeah, everything. Yeah. Or, everything and, and shipping the bike and Absolutely. All, the, all those and, things. And the flights. And, and the fli uh, Yeah, all of the flights. Yeah, and, and there's times that you have to fly, in most cases, 
because uh, you you ship from the south of Africa, right? From yes. southern Africa over to South America. Over yeah, to so you had Argentina to Buenos Aires. Yeah, so you have to you have to fly yourself at that point in time too. And then, so you what was the motorcycle you used? It was a Yamaha. Right? Yamaha two fifty WR. Yeah. WR two fifty R. Yeah. Which is a pretty sweet bike because it's simple. Mm. but extremely high quality. Mm. I found out also, this applies to the equipment you take with you as well. It's a cliche, but quality more important than quantity. Yeah, sure. So a simple bike, well-built, way better than over-specs. Yeah, uh, sure. How do you say, like something yeah. that o- has a... Yeah, overdone. Uh-huh. Like all the other stuff you saw in Baja, uh-huh. all, over, <laughs> all overdone. So now how much did you spend on the on the motorcycle and getting the bike ready, okay. ready to leave. I bought the bike. It was a third hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still remember the kilometers it had on it. 1,372 kilometers. Okay. It so was fairly low. It, absolutely low. Yeah. It was brand new. I mean, I think it's considered by Yamaha as broken in. Is that an expression? Mm-hmm. At 1,500. And I was 1,300. Sure. Um, the thing is, uh, it was bought in Milan by um, a guy who found it uncomfortable to drive with. And yeah. indeed, it's not a very comfortable bike. His friend mocked him and said, I'm going to buy it and show you how to use it. Never did. <laughs> and then when I bought it, um, he's, the reason he said he was selling it, because, of course, you want to ask s- such a new bike, but two people already <laughs> sold it. Is there something that I should know? Yeah. And they said, no, I'm selling it because I find it uh, very uncomfortable to go from Milan to Brescia, which is 100-something kilometers. Sure. It's not fit for long distances. And he asked me, what do you plan to use it for? And I said, going to South Africa. <laughs> and, uh, and then as a tease and as a joke, I kept posting this guy maybe a picture a month from different locations <laughs> with That's a caption so cool. saying, yeah, not too comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that was very cheap. It was back then, I think, and here I'm fishing from memory, so I could be wrong, but I think it was around seven, eight thousand dollars new. Yeah. I paid it three thousand one hundred. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the figure. And then the setting up was um, again good quality, but little, few items. Yeah. So if you focus where you put your efforts, you manage to set it up, set it up for a very. Let's say I don't think I spent another thousand on it. So I mean, just for my own math, and I'm and yeah. for those listening, you. You bought the bicycle, or you bought the motorcycle. You maybe spent five thousand dollars total. Probably less. Yeah. Uh, probably less. Yeah. And then you spent twenty-four thousand dollars all in. Twenty-two. Twenty-two thousand yeah. for twenty-four months. Yeah. So you're you're twenty-five, twenty-six thousand dollars for two years of life. For two years, seeing the world, yeah. and people will spend that on. I mean, they'll spend it on a watch. They'll spend it on a used car. And I mean, they, it's just, it just shows how absolutely possible absolutely. it is to make different choices in your life. If seeing the world is important and it's really what you want to do, it can be done yeah. for a very reasonable amount of money. And you got to see the world. Yeah. Like, how, like, how do you even put a price on that? I remember um, a couple of times, well, maybe a little bit more. Here in the States, I um, was invited to give speeches about the travel. And uh, I remember that I had a question that kept being asked. And I, for the first few times, I didn't know how to reply to that. And it was, why did you do this? And I was taken aback because it's a question that I would n- n- it would not even occur to me. And until one day, uh, an answer popped by automatically. And since then, I used this because I thought, oh, OK, it fits. 
when this guy asked me, why did you go on the travel? I asked him, look, can I, can I reply with another question? If you had a kid and the kid was out playing in the, in the backyard with bugs, would you ask him why is he not watching TV and is he outside? I mean, is it a question? I mean, wouldn't yeah. the question be the opposite? Why are you not doing it? Yeah. Why are you not yeah, doing it? Yeah, I mean, as long as you're out playing with bugs, and so you shouldn't be, be investigating why you're doing it. You just keep doing it if you're having fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, that, yeah, that was something that surprised me. I, I like that. And it's interesting how many people choose to just sit and watch the television. Okay, I, I, I came to develop some sort of a theory about it. And uh, it's a matter of fact that we need to act in order to feel that we we are yeah that we that every passing day makes sense and so when you need to act um you need to somehow coordinate your 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 actions to a behavior and this behavior very often is given from the outside be it in the form of fashion be it in the form of uh any sort of, I don't mean to sound harsh, but any sort of... Celeb ma- celebrity or anything else? Yeah. yeah. Or some sort of a implicit manipulation that you are subjected to where yeah. there are things that being already approved as meaningful, you don't have to go through the process of uh, evaluating if they really are meaningful to you. They yeah. are meaningful in general. Is it, yeah. it, it, imagine if you are in the woods and you need to survive and you need to try different roots and, and, and veggies it's a risk. Any that you eat might feed you, might kill you. Yeah. So what do you do? You just follow what it's already been proven to be healthy yeah, and okay. Sure. But sometimes it's also the lazy choice. Sometimes it takes, maybe there's an amazing berry just next to you and you're not trying that because nobody's doing it. Yeah. So of course, it doesn't mean let everybody be reckless and, and expose yourself to any danger. But I believe that there's a minimum amount of danger we are meant to go through to be alive. Hmm. If you deprive yourself from a doses of risk, the minimum doses of risk, you're going to end up anxious, depressed, sad, uh, n- nauseated. Yes, from I life. Think so right. there's a little bit of exposure that you need. I think it's the one that I mentioned before when I was a kid, a little bit. I'm yeah. sure I was never at risk. My father yeah. was there looking for me. I'm sure of that. Yeah. But at the same time, the message that I got was, Try the, try the berry. Try the berry. Yeah. Oh, there's a Zen story, a very nice okay. one that I remember. There's a monk okay. walking next to a cliff, and a, a, all of a sudden a tiger pops out. So in order to escape the tiger, he jumps into the cliff and grabs a, a branch. So he's hanging there, and he looks up, and, and there's a tiger just a feet from him, yeah. a foot from him. And he looks down, and there's a abismo, how do you say, like a, 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 a void. A, yeah, sure. And then he looks on the side, and on this very branch, there's a berry on it. And the Zen story ends with, how good was that berry? <laughs> sure. So all of a sudden, the perspective switches, the focus switches from possible dangers to the actual local benefit that is next to you and that you could actually enjoy and then yeah. see what happens next. Yeah. Which doesn't mean, let's say, like I said before, be reckless, just eat berries and then drop to your death or be eaten by, the ti- by a tiger. But only, there's always going to be dangers. Some of them are healthy. That's only yeah. the, the, what I'm saying. Some of them are really necessary. Well, and, and if you think about most of human history, we were exposed constantly yeah. 
to danger and we were constantly exposed to problem solving and navigating exactly. and using our minds in these very complex ways. And right now, most people operate in like, I mean, in, in Celsius, they're operating at 20 degrees Celsius, yeah. 21 degrees Celsius all the time. Yeah. They're very comfortable. Life is not, yeah. we're not exposed to the elements. And I think that you make a good point that the more that we expose ourselves to reasonable risk and reasonable yeah. danger and the unknown, I think the stronger we are. Yeah. When you mentioned now problem solving, I believe, well, at least speaking for myself, I don't have an extensive, uh, let's say, sample case to analyze, mm -hmm. analyze except myself. But if I don't have something that I choose to worry about, which is a travel, which is uh, an adventure, I will worry about something else. <laughs> sure. it, it's not that I will not worry. So <laughs> if you at least choose to worry, it becomes a challenge and not a can I say pain in the ass on, yeah, on here? Yeah, you can say it, yeah. So it's not a pain in the ass. It's something you choose. And when you choose a, a problem, it becomes a challenge. Yeah. So I remember another thing that they would ask me is, um, um, did you have troubles on, the, on, the, on, the, on this adventure? And I said, I, I started the travel looking for problems. And I was lucky because I found tons <laughs> of them. Sure. Lots of them. So yeah. many that would actually keep me busy and train this mechanism that you just mentioned of problem solving but focused on something necessary yeah. and not something fictitious in my head. Yeah, sure. So that was a very healthy mechanism. That or I, or I why you want the new car or why you're upset because you didn't get the new Armani suit or what. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think you're right. Human beings will fill in that space with uh, yeah. something unhealthy. It yeah. might as well be yeah. something healthy that we choose. And that's probably also why there's so many people doing uh, and good for them and uh, and. Um, Voluntary work? How do you yeah, say it? Sure. Um, yeah, sure. Voluntary it's a, work, sure. Because it's a way to worry about something you're not directly involved with. Mm. So you're going to do your best because worry is a little bit out of the equation as for yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. a, So you can perform fully. Very often you will be able to face let's say somebody else's problem and help them fix it better than you would do with your own problems. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> and we always give other people this, yeah. the advice that we need to tell but ourselves. Because the storm yeah. is not so close from home yeah, in, right. in that moment. Yeah, so true. You, you, you basically spent somewhere around $25,000, $26,000. And you are trained as an architect. And yes. you're, you're a professional. Um, give a little bit of insight into how you got ready to leave, yeah. like uh, how you saved money, yeah. uh, how you put yourself in a mindset to be able to go on this trip. Yeah, especially we just spoke about, uh, let's say, the financial element to it, but there's one element that is probably more important, which is the time element. Yeah. And uh, I mean, money you can accumulate. There's going to be people who are richer than you and more poor than you, but time we pretty much have the same budget. Yeah. Day by day, there's yeah. nobody that has much more than even Bill, hours a even day. Bill Gates has <laughs> the same amount of time that so we do. So my know? point is that very often when I would speak about the travel or plan the travel myself, the main concern of people was not money, was yeah, but I don't have the time to do it. And uh, when actually time is the only thing they have and mm -hmm. I have. And very often we end up doing some work that actually turns into renting or selling eight hours of our day in exchange for money. So but that's a little dangerous because you don't sell your talent or your abilities. You don't 
make them sell us is a bad word, but let's say you don't make a living out of your talent, but just out of renting time. So yeah. eight hours you're there, but you have no creative control on how to spend that those yeah, sure. eight hours. So as I finished architecture, normally the common path would be you go into an office, do some practice there, and then eventually you will open your own office, your practice, or I don't sure. know how to say that in, in Yeah, English. exactly, yeah. And uh, so that happened when I was 24. By the time I was 28, I was extremely unhappy. And I couldn't understand why. Because mm-hmm. on paper, everything was perfect. I had a very good job in a very good office. I'm still in touch with these guys, and we still work together. So I could understand why, if economically and financially, the situation was very good. Personally, it was extremely good, very good people. It was creatively challenging. Everything was good on paper. And I wasn't happy. Yeah. And again, Armando, my father, was a very good help because I knew I would eventually leave this job. But if you have to fight against, let's say, your closest environment and everybody tells you that that is what you are supposed to do as a grown adult and you don't want to do it, I believe if you're strong enough, you will end up changing your path. But you're going to have to fight a lot of wind resistance that is sure. unnecessary. Sure. And it will end up weakening you. So I remember being very upset, not understanding why I was not happy with that uh, Monday to Friday job. And I remember <laughs> I locked myself into the bathroom of this office and I called my dad. And I said, look, dad, I don't know what's wrong, but everything should be fine and I'm not unhappy. And he said, well, get out of there. And I'm, yeah, I'll get out of the toilet eventually. No, 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 <laughs> get out of that job. Yeah. And I remember as a test, I told him, oh, yeah, dad, but they, it's such a good job and they pay so well. And he said, if I hear you talk again in the same sentence about money and being happy, <laughs> I'm going to kick you. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that was exactly what I had in mind. But I wanted him to say, you're not insane. This yeah, makes a lot of sense. Sure. So I remember taking a few months just to let the idea sink and not take a decision based on impulse. And when I saw that after three, four months, I still had that in my mind very clearly. I went to these uh, to the three partners in, in the office and I told them, look, I, I want to leave. And uh, one of them looked at the other two and said, told you. <laughs> and I said, did you know? I said, yeah, I'm surprised it took you so long to leave. So long story short, that's when I, I quit working for an office because I couldn't hand, handle very well the fact of selling my time. Yeah. It would, sorry, I, my mind keeps going from yeah. one side to the other. No, you're doing well. I remember, uh, for instance, they would assign me uh, some work for the week. Yeah. And on Wednesday, Wednesday, because I'm working hard and, and many hours, I would have finished it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go and take the motorcycle and go around Madrid. Back then I was working in Madrid. And they said, oh, no, you can do that because if we do it with you, we'd have to do it with everybody else. And I said, but I have finished my job. So would you like better that I fake <laughs> slow working so I dilute my work in a week? So what's the point? You pay me for the result or the time? So that was my yeah. short circuit in, in my brain. So eventually what I missed was exactly the capability, the ability to manage my time together yeah. with the work done. So from then on, we started working as a consultant and uh, best decision ever. Yeah, sure. Because you, and now I'm, responsibility is on what I deliver, not on the time that it takes me to do it. Sure. And, and you took, still work with those guys. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So see, it all worked out. Yeah. They said, no, 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 this is never going to work. <laughs> and uh, it did. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so you had to have been very disciplined and saved your money. Yes. And, and, and yes. then was it that you knew once I got to this amount of money, I was going to leave or you just decided this was no, the date, no. this was the date. And I was, I, I truly believe that, um, over planning is, is a real killer and uh, that you should plan the means, but never the, uh, an outline of the, the actual adventure, yeah. meaning you got to make sure that you have the time and the money to start, but you should not see an end to it. Yeah. It's like falling in love with somebody and thinking, mm, how much love I have for this girl? Mm, yeah. Okay, two years, and then it's over. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So you start with the in, illusion, how do you say that, the enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. Enough Maybe to know. a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> illusion and enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. In Spanish, illusion is funny, but it means um, like a, not a deceit, deceitful, how do you yeah, say it? Yeah, sure. Uh, but enthusiasm. Yeah, sure. So they go, <laughs> I like they that. go hand by hand. I like that. So anyway, in talking a bit by numbers, otherwise I get a little carried away. But let's say, first of all, I did not set off thinking I'm going to go around the world for two years, first of all. I tricked myself into believing. I know I would have never had the guts, the money, the, the, the mind clarity to say, okay, I'm ready to face this. So I tricked myself into believing that it would be a few months to South Africa. And I had enough time and money for that. And then as things went rolling, it became more and more. But at no point, it was a plan for two years. It was also always a plan of, Okay, let's go a bit more. Maybe a few weeks. Maybe a month. Maybe yeah. okay. Maybe it could be a, a, an objective in time or in space. Could be okay, and more one more month, or I'll get to this place in Patagonia, and then yeah. I'll see. And uh, again, one of the reasons I believe you don't have to plan too much is because by planning too much, you set the extents of your experience beforehand. Therefore, you limit it. Yeah. Because you have no idea what's going to happen on the route that is going to expand that possibility of experience. Yeah. It, to give a practical example, um, once I got to South Africa, I had no clear idea where I could go from there. If I had planned it, imagine and booked already a, a travel to some location, I would not have the good accident of going there to the port in South Africa in Cape Town to speak to a shipping agent to see exactly what I was going to do with my bike. And exactly when a couple of Russians um, and uh, pensioners, yeah, sure, they were there and they were trying to ship their car to America, to Argentina. And their English was so broken down that actually me having a broken down English could understand them, <laughs> but a local couldn't. Yeah, sure. So I was helping them translate English into a slightly better English. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, as it turns out, these guys uh, were renting a, a container. And the container, when you buy it, you purchase up to six ton, back then at least, that you can ship in it, regardless of what's inside. So I asked them, would you mind if I put my 130 kilo bike in your container? So long story short, they could ship the bike for free from Cape Town to Buenos Aires. Unbelievable. But if I had planned in advance, I would have missed this chance. If yeah. I would have, say, booked already a, a cargo ship somewhere, yeah. I would have not had this opportunity. So that's why I'm always a little keen of leaving many blank spots in the plant. <laughs> Allow for some yeah. ser serendipity. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, when you, and one of the things that I remember you talking about in Africa was 
your favorite country? And, I, and I'm curious if I still remember that right. But what was your favorite country in, in Africa? Oh, man, I don't know what I told you because I, I, I came... <laughs> Well, there's so many amazing yeah. countries, but what, I guess it was maybe the one that really surprised you, that you thought it was going to be one way and it ended up being so amazing oh, man. when I, you were in Sudan. so Okay, but the reason I, I was so uncertain is because depending on the moment of the year or the, yeah. or the day you ask me, I would probably give you a different answer because of, <laughs> sure. of different things that stroke me. Yeah, sure. But um, what I loved very much about uh, the northern so say Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia, was the um, variation in the landscape, both human and geographical, topographical landscape. Because you go from white deserts to basically rugged hills of uh, yeah. Ethiopia, with everything in between. But especially um, in Sudan, which is possibly what I mentioned, and now I'm, yeah. I'm trying to fish from Yeah, now. sure. No, no, that's okay. Um, it was my very first experience of traveling long distances with no reference at all. No roads, nothing that tells you that you're actually moving because anywhere you look around your 360 on the horizon, you see this flat line and it's blue on top of it and it's yellow yeah. down below, but there's no reference. So you use uh, your GPS in navigation, uh, sorry, in um, Maritimo, in sea routing. How would oh, you call sure. that? Yeah, like, so, like point of reference. Yeah, point of reference. Yeah, sure. And then you just move with a compass that tells you yeah. you're going five degrees offset. Or, yeah. And it was the first time that I, again, I repeat myself, that you would move 80 an hour, 80 kilometers an hour, and nothing would come close to you ever. So it, it was both stimulating and a little bit anxiety generating yeah, because sure. you feel like you're like in, you know in dreams when you run and you, you don't actually move <laughs> yeah, that's right same thing yeah, i was yeah. running and i wasn't going anywhere yeah so you start and thinking, it's a big country too sudan is a big yeah. country so you start yeah. thinking i'm stuck here yeah even though it's not true and uh another element to it was uh, hospitality in yeah, such rugged environments that. you mentioned that yeah there's a, like a linear correlation between how hard it is to leave somewhere and how normally friendly and helpful people will be there. Yeah, because sure. exposure to need and, uh, let's say, discomfort will yeah. lead them to be extremely sensitive to read and detect that discomfort in others yeah. and try to put an end to it. Yeah, sure. So it wasn't absolutely uncommon that you would be offered their beds. Yeah, sure. So it would really take you almost a confrontation to say, I truly have my own teeny yeah. tiny bed and a sleeping yeah. bag. And you would have to show them yeah. that before they would say, okay, yeah. okay, I will let you deny my offer. And, and uh, very how, how incredible is that though? It's just that there are places in the world where a family cares for you so yeah. much as a yeah. total stranger yeah. that they're willing to give you what very little food they have yeah. and what very little comfort that they may have. They, they want to share that with you. It's amazing. Yeah. It probably has to do with the fact that that connection, human connection, and the fact that whatever comes to you is a loader or a bearer, a bearer of uh, novelty and, and, and information and new experience. We somehow become, I believe, anesthetized okay, to sure. this because we are subject to such a 
bombardation, how do you say, like a bombing of images. Just think of the amount of images you see every day on your phone. Thousands of thousands of different places. You're somehow crammed with that information to the point that necessarily, I believe, your hunger for it diminishes. And it's like if you're at a buffet and they keep showing your food, you get to a point where you don't want to know anything about it. But now imagine you live with your family in in a tribe of 20, 50 people basically a family clan and and then you get you're given the possibility well the possibility the chance to meet something someone that is the bearer of just something different you have a different level of of curiosity sure and i believe that together with danger we mentioned before what really makes our time here worthwhile is the giving in to curiosity somehow um and asking questions yeah, sure asking questions all yeah. the time and what better way is to find somebody that has a totally different life than yours and see how we being such similar animals yeah. live different lives and and it is so so enriching to it, it really is and and it's just a reminder of the things that are most important which is connection and you know our families and mm-hmm. all of that so you, you make it all the way down to South Africa, you ship to Argentina, uh-huh. and then uh, you, you make it all the way down to Ushuaia, and you start heading back north yes, again. Yes, and I'm sorry, I'm a terrible uh, interviewee. No, no, you're doing wonderful. Because I'll, I'll go one step back. Um, one thing I haven't mentioned, and it's absolutely worth mentioning, and it's important. When I left Italy, I left with a buddy, with a friend, and our plan was to go down to Cape Town in 10 weeks. So it was more of a rally-like experience than a journey to, let's say, uh, be drifting slowly around. So we had 10, 12 hours a day on the bike. It was quite physically demanding, but absolutely beautiful. It was rallying nonstop. Uh, All all this was, of course, on gravel roads when possible or local roads in in tarmac when not possible to choose the other option, but never, ever on major roads. Sure. Never, ever. So sometimes it would be 12 hours on the bike, but your average speed would be, speed would be 40, yeah, 35. Sure. And um, so I, I want to point this out, first of all, to give Johan, who was the buddy who was with me, his uh, due uh, space here. Yeah. And uh, is the funniest guy. And to travel with somebody who has a sense of humor, <laughs> yeah. it's sure. fundamental because you are exposed to stress so much that if you find a way to catalyze that stress and convert it into something else, namely humor. Yeah, sure. It is such a relief. <laughs> and it's so every, every occasion becomes a reason to have a good story to tell yeah. when you go back. And what was, what was one of the most funny moments that happened um, with you guys? Well, we would have this, this unspoken, and that was what really made it uh, work well, an unspoken connection where in moments of stress, one of the two would take the, the lead and the stress situation, the other one would just drift away. And uh, it wasn't spoken. So it was just a matter of looking at each other and non-verbal communication. It would be like, oh, you take this. Okay, I'll, I'll go. Yeah. And for instance, it was very often that it would ask, uh, be asked bribes. Mm. And uh, right from the get-go, we found out that the best way to deal with them was, again, humor. So if you have a guy playing tough and saying you were speeding when you were not, it's never going to work if you try to insist you are not speeding. Sure. You just make 
you just play silly, a yeah. bit clownish. So that is going to break character. Yeah. It cannot play tough if you play silly yeah. without being offensive, of course. Right, Not sure. By silly, I don't mean mocking him. Yeah, sure. But example, I remember when one occasion they would uh, stop us and ask for um, an insurance, and we gave them the paper. The guy pocketed the insurance and said, now you have to buy it back. So you could you know, play tough, I'm going to call the consulate, and yeah, this is yeah. unacceptable. And, but instead we said... You know what, money, we don't have much, but we have plenty of time, so we will try to buy it back with time and patience. And it was taken back. It was, what do yeah. you mean? I'm like, I don't know what we mean. We're just going to sit down here and see what happens. And we sat there at his feet, yeah. literally at his yeah. feet, got the Kindle out, started reading, get, <laughs> got cookies out, and, <laughs> which is where in our living room yeah. <laughs> and eventually uh, human beings, even if they play tough and confrontational, Deep down, they just are curious, like yeah. we said before. So eventually, we would take out, say, the, the tablet and go through photos, and he would be asking where those photos were from. And then you would give him a cookie, and he yeah. gives you whatever, cigarette, you smoke, or <laughs> yeah, whatever sure. it is. And eventually, after four or five hours, he would ask you, where you plan to sleep that night? And you tell him, look, if you let us go, this place. But we only have so much light now. Yeah. And then he would give you the... Uh, your documents, uh, pat on your shoulder, and, <laughs> and goodbye. So it's some way to de-escalate and defuse. Yeah. And Johan was very good in this kind of stuff. Oh, that's amazing. For instance, I remember one occasion where a guy was extremely insistent on selling us some wooden masks, beautifully made, but huge. And we yeah. were on a bike. And we were trying to make him understand there's no way we can buy it if, him, if we would like. And he would not stop trying to sell it. <laughs> And so Johan looked at me and was like, what's this? <laughs> so basically, he chose a mask. So he entertained the guy for 20, 30 minutes. Again, not because he was being cruel, but just yeah. because the guy didn't seem to want to leave. Yeah, sure. So eventually, he chose a huge mask, and he said, okay, I'll pick this one. Can you fold it for me? <laughs> and the guy looked at him and then at me. I raised my arms and said, <laughs> I warned you <laughs> that this guy is a joker. Yeah. So basically, he understood that. Like we're, we we're, couldn't yeah, take it. Yeah. So that was his kind of. Yeah. No, those are so good, though. Those are such good experiences. And, and it's it is so important to keep that attitude, yeah. that positive yeah. attitude. So going back to your original questions, um, I, I made this digression just to say Africa was some sort of a sport adventure where yeah. we would just ride, 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 ride and then have socializing in the evening when, when we would have up in, in some village. But once in the Americas, I totally switched. So by then I was on my own, and I decided that I just wanted to some, somehow drift very slowly with nearly no plan other than a direction, like south, more or yeah. less. So my, my, let's say my rate of progression changed radically. Yeah. So now I will be riding maybe 100 Ks, 200 Ks uh, a day. Sometimes I would spend uh, days in, with a family in Patagonia, in Samafienda. Sure. So it totally changed. It became, travel became just a way of, let's say, of a means of experience. But it was not even the, the objective anymore. Sure. It was just a way to expose myself to other experiences. Yeah. But sometimes I didn't even feel that I was actually traveling because I was moving so slow, so somehow randomly that uh, it seemed it was not even the objective. Sure. And uh, You were just being yourself. Yeah, yeah exactly. You just, uh, 
Oh, you, you get to meet so many people. You do. And uh, yeah. I remember in, uh, in Ushuaia, of course, being the budget low, at some point, um, I usually camped. But back then in Ushuaia, since it was not a planned trip, I ended up there in autumn nearing winter. Sure. And nights were sometimes 18 degrees below zero in the tent. Yeah. Because it was a summer tent meant for a trip in Africa. <laughs> sure. So um, once I get to Ushuaia, I was definitely needing, after going through all the whole of Patagonian tent, I needed to be in some warm room and warm shower. And so I was do going door to door from the hostels and asking for prices. And keep in mind, it was raining and snowing and raining. So you get to a hostel, get off the bike, <laughs> get all the clothes away. It becomes some sort of a, a sure. ritual. Yeah. You go in, uh, get for the quotes and the rates, and then go out, think a bit, go to another place. It's maybe the fifth or sixth that I'm hitting. They give me a rate which was good enough, something that I could afford. And, uh, but still, they saw me a little doubtful, no thinking. And they said, look, breakfast is included. And I said, okay, what if we take breakfast off? <laughs> he smiled and he said, where are you coming from? And I showed him the map. And he said, and he, I'm sure he made that up on the spot. He said, oh, you're lucky because we have a deal that if you have been on the same journey on three different continents, <laughs> then your stay is free. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, I, I understood that, that was, he was just being generous. Yeah. So my initial plan was I'm going to stay in Ushuaia a good week, 10 days yeah. to rest. Yeah, Since sure. I was getting that as a present, I didn't want to take advantage of sure, it. Sure, so sure. I stayed there a couple of nights. And then on the third day, packed everything, and I was ready to leave. And he said, uh, so I go through reception. I'm doing the checkout. And the guy said, where are you, leaving? Where are you going? I said, well, I'm ready to go and travel more. And he could read me. He said, <laughs> you, just, you just don't want to take advantage of, of the stay. So he basically forced me between brackets to stay there longer. <laughs> and my way to give something back was that the day that I left, I went to the supermarket and, and bought a huge, let's say, breakfast kit yeah. so that it would refurnish the, sure. the, the morning um, buffet. So yeah, sure. And I remember he got pissed and he said, you are not supposed to do that because I, I, I was offering you this. Uh, to which I replied, yeah, you own a business. You're not supposed to have people stay here for free. So who yeah. wins? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, it, yeah, the generosity of people, Amazing. right? Yeah. So uh, some questions come to mind for me, um, and then we're going to get to the end of your trip because I think people will find it fun. But um, what were some of the, the, the key things that you learned crossing Africa and crossing the Americas? When you went back to Italy, how had you changed? What had changed about you? Um, a radical thing. The, the ability to read nonverbal communication. Mm. When you're alone and exposed to different environments, radically different environments, say you're alone in a um, tribe in Ethiopia, you are entirely dependent on the way you read nonverbal non intentions. Yeah, so sure. how people are looking at you, what they're looking for in sure. you and it's vital to be quick in that in reading what they what their intentions are and based on that adjust your behavior as in very friendly not so friendly openly yeah. aggressive yeah sure. because sometimes you would have to fake i remember that I, I came to the conclusion that sometimes you have to fake some sort of um unreadable state of mind i'll, I'll try to yeah, explain sure. if you are very openly kind with somebody kind 
boom, easy connection. If you do that with somebody with mm, meh, nasty intentions, you just weakened yourself. Yeah, sure. So when I sensed that the environment was not so friendly or at least a little bit dodgy, I would give mixed signals. Yeah. That is super interesting to do. So people will think they have an open plan with you or at least a clear plan when they think they could read you. But now if you lead them th through different roads, <laughs> they don't really know where they are. So that would be achieved by being very open and smiling and then all of a sudden have a twist in mood or do something unpredictable nearing the aggressivity. Yeah, sure. So imagine they, they're being friendly and then somebody tries to take advantage and maybe touches your bags and tries to go to, to your belongings and then you snap. But yeah. it's not a real snap. It yeah, was simulated. Sure. And, and then just after that, big broad smile. Yeah. And they are confused as hell. <laughs> they don't know sure. what's going on in your head sure. and you also don't know. Yeah. But the thing is it makes them a little bit more reluctant to frame you as potential victim. As a victim or, yeah, yeah, sure. And that worked very well. So yeah. in short, I think you have to be um, enough assertive as to not be, be taken advantage of, but not to the point to become a threat to anyone. Yeah, sure. So you would always have that mixed balance between... Because you don't want it to escalate. Yeah. yeah. So Now, this is an interesting question. Did you find then that nonverbal communication was fairly consistent? Yes. Interesting. Yes. So despite the cultural differences, despite the language differences, yeah. these core human nonverbal yeah. communication styles are And I have, and are, I have are no similar. elements to say that on a scientific base, but I would yeah. say that verbal communication is a fairly recent thing. Yeah. And we've had an, an animal communication for way longer than yeah, words. Sure. And I believe that that is still there. You can still read... Like a, a dog, yeah. depending on he moves the way he moves uh, his ears, yeah. you will know what is what's in his mind. Yeah. We have the same, even though he's not taught at school in school. Mm. Yeah, sure. But the way you move your eyebrows, your the muscle on your neck tends. It makes sense. Oh yeah, it totally you can makes clearly sense. tell what the guy, despite what he's saying, you can tell if what he's saying matches his body language or not. His intentions. Uh -huh. Yeah, interesting. Well, so then, what were some other things that you learned? Um, I've always been, like we mentioned before, now you always need something to worry about. So I've always tended to overthink anything yeah. in life. I think most people do yeah. that. Yeah. But it's something that I never was pleased about. So my policy is very simple. If you don't like something, don't keep doing the same yeah. mistake over and over. <laughs> and it's not easy, but at least the intention is clear. I believe that, as with poison, when you get exposed to very small amounts of it over a long period of time, you become some sort of immune to that. Yeah. Being exposed to the anxiety of travel, of the uncertainty of, an, of, of traveling on your own for so long, put wars into perspective. Meaning, now I can be way more detached by things that I see as silly, and maybe five years ago, ten years ago, I didn't see as silly. Yeah, sure. I saw as important, vitally yeah. important, and now yeah. I recognize that. On the grand scale of my life, they're not really that much. Yeah. The insurance has doubled on my bike. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah. forget about it. And before, I wouldn't be like that. I would attach yeah. to, to the worry as a, how do you say, as a tick yeah, to the body. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, and it would slowly. So it definitely changed my perception of what is really, no, really, this sounds pretentious, but I, let's say I'm less prone to react right away 
in a, co- in a cause effect mechanism. Yeah. I don't know if I yeah, explain sense, myself. Yeah. So now let's say my buffer time before reaction is longer than it used to be. So That's something good. happens and before I would snap. Yeah. And now I'm like, I should probably snap, but let me think a bit. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's funny. If people would just take a breath yeah. before they respond, yeah. even one breath, yeah. when someone says something that frustrates them or yeah. if they would just take a full breath yeah. before they respond, I think the outcomes are, I mean, that's what I choose to do yeah. is no matter what, no matter what I'm responding to, I take a full breath because then that way it just gives me just enough separation yeah. From, our, from my emotional response to have more of a, of a human or an intellectual response. Yeah, exactly. for sure. And we're going to take a quick break to talk about what makes this podcast possible. The Overland Journal podcast is brought about by Overland Journal Magazine, which is our premium print publication. But it's also brought about by ExpeditionPortal.com, which is our website. If you go to ExpeditionPortal.com, you'll be able to interact with about 300,000 other overlanders that are in our forum. And then you can read up to 4,000 articles that we have on the homepage. So we thank you all for listening. We thank you for supporting the Overland Journal magazine and expeditionportal.com. Well, your, your trip was such an inspiration to me and, and it has been to so many. We, we've featured your, your, your photographs in, Over, in Overland Journal and it, it was it just was such a joy to see you make it through that whole whole process and you make it all the way up to Alaska yes. on this on this motorcycle that um, that endured so much and I, I believe you made it to Fairbanks to that Fairbanks right? exactly yeah. and then what happened in Fairbanks so like I said the plan was never a fixed plan but by the time I was in Fairbanks the plan at the moment was to cross into Russia. And then why not make it all the way back overland to Italy? So crossing potentially probably Russia in the stands. Yeah, I don't sure. know if you call them Central, that way. Yeah, yeah. Central Asia, yeah. Um, but by the time, so keep in mind this bike has been two years on the road, um, very often exposed to high altitude deserts with all the minerals and the mm-hmm. corrosion that might happen there. So in the last few months, uh, electric-wise, it was being a little bit uh, jazzy, <laughs> <laughs> meaning that if you would put a turn signal on, the engine would respond to the <laughs> to the actually okay, rev. That's exciting. <laughs> so by the time I got to Fairbanks, the stator had collapsed. So I was uh, able to find a new one, put it in. Problem was that the the original stator had failed because the it had been. Uh, it was overtaxed okay. by the fact that there's so much dispersion oh. was occurring through the wiring harness. Okay. So being the bike consuming way more than it should have, the stator had to work way more than it was supposed to work for. Hmm. So that basically cooked. The, t- the moment that I put on a new one, the new one delivering full capacity, I believe it was 14.8 uh, yeah, watts. watts. Yeah, yeah, sure. It basically fried everything. Oh, wow. So the ECU, everything you can imagine, I was gone. So then I stopped in Fairbanks in a, in a shop called Northern Power Sports. Okay. Lovely guys. Lovely guys. They helped me. Keep in mind, I, I, back then, I was not in, in a situation where I could pay for, let's say, four or five hundred euros dollars just to have four hours of a guy checking what was wrong. Sure. So the guy did it on their spare time yeah. as a... Actually, I believe they stole 
their own time. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it was not just fair time, as they told. Anyway, the, the di- diagnostic yeah. was that, um, like I said, uh, everything electric was gone. So we were talking about having parts delivered from Europe because the European model is different due to contamination regulations. So all the plug connections are different. Everything electronic is different. Yeah, sure. Problem was it would have been a couple of months between the delivery. The price would have been way higher than the buy. In long story short, I didn't have the cash for that. Sure. At the same time, I didn't feel like raising the white flag and saying, okay, I've been defeated by failure and I'm going back to Italy. So this shop had uh, two bikes on sale secondhand. One was a V-Strom, totally destroyed, probably used by somebody else to do an overland yeah, uh, sure, sure. Uh, overland sorry, <laughs> trip. And the other one was a bike that didn't have anything to do with mine, at least my way of traveling. And it was a um, Kawasaki ZG1000. Okay. It was basically like, imagine a couch <laughs> that, <laughs> that rides real fast. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And uh, so these, these guys, Craig was his name, uh, they sold me this bike for a very good price, lower than they should have. And with that bike, I went the only place where I could uh, easily work, which was uh, Mexico. Okay, that's right. You went to Mexico City. Yeah. So from Alaska, I went all the way down to Mexico, where I stayed for one year. And, uh, well, saving enough money to go back to Europe then. Yeah. And, uh, but the idea is still there to retrieve the bike up in Alaska eventually have it fixed and continue traveling or continue traveling with another bike. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, that sounds like an adventure just to get, I mean, hopefully the bike yeah. is still around. Yeah. <clears throat> and like you said, it would be understandable if it wasn't, it's been a few years. Yeah. So, um, maybe the bike is still there. So those that are listening, we're going to find out yeah. if Stefano's bike is still in Fairbanks. And if it too. is, if it is, um, maybe we could all pull together to see if we can get that fixed. That would be awesome. And then you got you to make it up to the end of the road. You were so close to the end yes. of the Pan American. Yes. So, but it, it was also so impressive for me to see your lack of attachment to that. Like you, you, you didn't feel gutted. You, uh, weren't, you weren't upset. I mean, you were probably slightly disappointed, but yeah. um, it didn't seem like it, but, it took away from uh, the whole journey. So. No, when, when, like I said, when in two years' time, you see that out of many accidents, good stuff came out. Yeah. Uh, you become a little bit more reluctant to judge an event <clears throat> as bad before you see the outcome. Yeah. And the outcome was actually very good because it came out one year of Mexico that I was not ever planning on. Um, I lived there. I knew people there. I was able to work there. And it was random. I would have never picked that, not sure. because of lack of um, interest, just because the option was not on my table. Yeah. And then it abruptly <laughs> ended yeah, up sure. on my table. Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah, that's probably another thing that you before mentioned, asked what I made of the experience. That's probably a third thing. The, the limiting the prejudgment of personal events. Yeah. Things yeah. that happen to you, being less swift in saying, okay, I want this, I don't want this. Because often I don't have the elements to know until I've given it a try. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe they're just meant to teach us something yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And often, and if we allow, allow it to teach us something. Yeah, because think of this. When you plan a trip, 
you have to be creative enough to imagine certain experiences. No, yeah. I want to go there, I want to experience that. So that's very good because it stimulates your creativity. At the same time, the experience is limited to your creativity. Yeah. And as good as it can be, it's never going to be as extensive as accidents. Yeah, sure. So you know what I'm trying to say, totally. that, that accidents can actually boost your creativity. So you got to be careful when you plan out to not overdo it because it's good to, let's say, start dancing, but you don't want to know exactly every move at the end because yeah. otherwise it's choreography. It's yeah. not a free dance anymore. Yeah, it's that's a, true. It's, it's an act. It's yeah. not an It's, not real, life. it's yeah. not real life. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the man or the woman. They're, they're currently working right now in Denver, Colorado, and they're an architect, and they want to go see the world. What advice would you give them? What would you, if you were, were going to talk to yourself uh, five years ago, seven years ago, whenever, whenever it was that you started your trip, and you were to give yourself some advice, or you were going to give that man or woman in Denver, Colorado, the architect that's about ready to want to go around the world, what would you tell them? What would be the advice you would give them? I would tell them that it's harder to rent a room than to make a travel like this. That yeah. only the first step seems difficult. I guarantee any other step is way easier than getting out of bed to go to this routine job. Way easier. Yeah. So my advice would be to myself, because you always feel in time that when you reach something in life, you wish you had done that before. Yeah. So what I would tell myself would basically be this, just take the first step. And I know it sounds cliche, and it sounds like um, trite. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But things are way easier when you do them than when you plan them. <laughs> yeah. So that's why over planning, it's truly ridiculous, because not only it takes energy to plan, but it also sucks energy to the actual experience. So it's a lose-lose situation. <laughs> sure. And... Uh, yeah, my, my advice to myself would be don't overthink it. Make sure that you're always the owner of your time, that if you have a job, you're being paid for the outcome of your job and not for the time it takes you to do it. And another trite element, that everything is short. Yeah. And uh, you only get a shot at life. One is enough if you use it well. Yeah. But there's a good chance you don't use it well, so yeah. try to... Try to change course. If you see there's no shame in changing course. If yeah. you see that you're not happy, there's probably a reason for that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, better find out before you can't find out <laughs> anymore. And then that's when regret happens when you yeah. when you get to the end of your life and you haven't. Lived, yeah, but lived, I believe regrets are also there's also a way to twist the omelet yeah. on the good side. Also, regrets are a great mechanism. Yeah, it tells you there's still enough time. Yeah. Nobody regrets when there's no more time. I, yeah. I don't believe that. Yeah. So once you feel the, it's like, uh, imagine you put your hand on the fire and it hurts. That's because your flesh is still alive and it tells you there's still something that can be done. Take yeah. your hand away. Yeah. The moment it doesn't hurt anymore is because the hand went into necrosis. Yeah. You don't have any need to take it away because it's dead already. Yeah, so sure. same with regret. If it still hurts, it means you can still do something yeah. about it. So you, it, the flesh is still alive. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. only when you don't care anymore that that it becomes dangerous. Yeah. No. That's yeah. that's wonderful advice. And and I I just want to thank you for being oh. who you are <laughs> and for being my friend and being in my life and for taking the time to come down to Prescott 
to have breakfast with me this morning. And I know that you're traveling around in this beautiful little Westfalia oh, yeah. that, uh, that Ray Denardi let you use from, from, from Vegas. And it's just, it's so great to see you. And Same, it's also man. so helpful to have these conversations and remind people that you can literally go around the world yeah. for years on less money than it would yeah. take to buy a, a used car. Absolutely. So it's just absolutely incredible what's possible if we put our mind to it. Also, my very first podcast, and uh, it's amazing. I know you better now than, than <laughs> an hour ago. Yeah, it's sure. a very good tool. Yeah, I had no is. idea that it would be so uh, pervasive. How do yeah. you say? Uh, Connecting, yeah. yeah. Well, it's this is the... This is the most favorite part of my job. I can't and see I have, why. And I didn't know that when I started podcasts. Uh-huh. Um, but I have been so fortunate to have so many people that I know and love sit across from me mm-hmm. and ask them the questions that I've always wanted to ask them about their yeah. life and about what they've learned. And so to me, it is the greatest honor to do this. And it's also the part of my job I love the most. So I, I feel like it's a win-win for me too. <laughs> so I get, to, I get to hang out with people that I care about. So Fantastic. Well, thank yes, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> and for those that want to follow your adventures, uh, can you give some information on, on uh, what Instagram account you have? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I don't know how to, well, Stefano Melgrati. Yeah. And uh, so the spelling would be S-T-E-F-A-N-O. And then that's my first name. And then the surname would be Melgrati, which spells M-E-L-G-R-A-T-I. There we go. Stefano Melgrati on Instagram. You can check him out, see his beautiful images and his travels around the world. We're going to do a little bit of work to see if his motorcycle is still in Fairbanks and see if we can help him complete his journey up to the Arctic Ocean. Um, So look for more information on that in the podcast. And Stefano, thank you again for being on the podcast. Grazie mille, Scott. And we thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>